He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. Oh, what a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, December 2, 2023. It's a special day in my household. My oldest son, Ben, it's his birthday. Happy birthday, Benny boy. He's a Jewish kid. Ron Weinberg, his original name, Yaron Weinberg, son of an Israeli Defense Forces soldier, born in South Africa, He came to America, lived in L.A. for a while, decided Colorado was better. Who doesn't know that? He moved to Loveland, got involved, put on a three-piece suit, and next thing you know, he's in the legislature, and he's making us proud as a Jewish guy standing up to some Jew haters. Look, we can debate certain things about geopolitics, but when it comes to Hamas and its atrocity against the Jews in Israel, you can't defend that. We can debate whether Israel is overreacting, tempers are getting hot. Over 100 hostages have been returned, but they still hold more than that. 17 women remain in captivity, and we want them back. By we, I mean the Jewish people in the world whether they're American Jews, Israeli Jews, Argentinian, whatever. We want the hostages back, and that's what Israel's trying to do. Meanwhile, there's obstructions galore. Thursday night in Denver, there were protests, and they will continue all weekend against the Jewish National Fund, people who collect tzedakah, charity, people who plant trees in Israel, but everything is political now especially if you are a Jew. You want to understand anti-Semitism? Chuck Schumer puts on a master course. Our United States Senate Majority Leader, the highest ever elected official of a Jewish faith in America, he gave an epic speech that nobody has played on talk radio, but I have it at the back end of my show, and I want you to listen to it because He explains things so well. This is destructive, this anti-Semitism. And as I record this late on Friday, Shabbat Shalom, I found out that Ruby Dixon, a promising young Jewish Democrat, is leaving the legislature because of all the turmoil, the toxicity that goes along with modern-day politics. And Mimi Roca, a DA in Westchester County, she's not running for re-election Another Jewish woman, it's not worth their trouble and the danger. Ron Weinberg stood up to Elizabeth Epps. Elizabeth Epps represents the kind of people who are with the Palestinians. I don't think she's Palestinian, but she's for the downtrodden. She's for the socialists, the communist side. I don't like those kind of labels, but I don't like anti-Semitism, and it sure can't come from the left. And we need to call it out like Chuck Schumer did. Now, some people just want to stir it up politically, and I can't stand that. Representative Weinberg has made the rounds of other shows, and I do monitor Denver Trump Radio. And George Prockler, who I've had shows 
about his political ambitions, which are boundless, and he wants to be Douglas County DA, which is the most extreme kind of Republican. So he saw this Weinberg-Epps incident as a chance to divide people, kind of like Trump. Mad Dog Man has said he divides like the Nazis do, but what the heck, George Brockler? Listen to my interview with Representative Weinberg, which will make you feel good about Dems and Republicans coming together against Elizabeth Epps and surrounding and love Representative Weinberg. Wait till you hear the rest of that story, but George Brockler, he presented it in a different way, and you will hear his little snippets. I'll play snippets of what I heard to make my case after you hear from Representative Weinberg. And after you hear from our troubadour, Dave Gunders, he is tremendous. And before you hear from Chuck Schumer, but I want you to hear from Elizabeth Epps and to hear the disruption she made. She was trying to attach some amendment to a bill to feed people and She talked about the poor kids of Gaza. I feel terrible for the poor kids of Gaza, further victims of Hamas. And I don't much like Bibi Netanyahu still in charge, especially after it's revealed that they had the plans in hand and they ignored it. Bibi's got to go at the right time, which is about now. But Elizabeth Epps is just a Jew hater, and Hamas has it in their charter that they want to eradicate Jews. And Elizabeth Epps supports these people coming in, saying from the river to the sea, from the Jordan to the Mediterranean, no Jews, no Jews allowed in Gaza, no Jews allowed in Arab Islamic countries. The Mizrahi that Chuck Schumer talks about, Elizabeth Epps doesn't care. She just views Jews as white people, oppressors, colonizers, not realizing that, hey, we've been there forever. You know, Jesus Christ, a Jewish guy, he was from there. Thousands of years ago, the Jewish people, hey, where is our homeland? Why do you cheer everybody else's homeland except ours, Rep. Epps? And then she started saying that Jews want to do ethnic cleansing. Come on now. That's how everybody gets killed when you start making accusations like that. I don't believe that's true. That's an incendiary allegation against the Jewish people. And Representative Weinberg stood up to it. Let me play for you how it went down. There's little dead air as Elizabeth Epps gets emotional. Everybody's emotional about this. But calling Jews ethnic cleansers and protesting the Jewish National Fund, we see what you're trying to do. Wipe the Jews out of the Jewish state of Israel. And we protest, Ms. Epps. This is what she did as she seized the well of the legislative floor and was allowed to spew her vitriol for up to 40 minutes. They really did let her talk a long time. And at the end, she had this to say about ethnic cleansing. And this is what got Ron Weinberg worked up. I'm embarrassed to admit that while I fully expected... While I fully expected it to be 64 to 1... I guess I have to ask you to vote yes, but really what I want to ask 
is in a few years when there are no Palestinian children left. Because that is what will happen if we keep turning a blind eye to the ethnic cleansing happening on our watch that we'll say never again and we'll stand up for the next round. Wait till you hear Rep Weinberg. There are so many new revelations about the Democrats coming to his aid and how Rep Weinberg did not even know the religions of the Attorney General or the Secretary of State. We have some fun with that because Ron Weinberg isn't focused on those things. Yaron Weinberg grew up in South Africa and they had to leave because of violence against him and his family when he was only 12. Then they went to L.A. and that was not the American dream. But Loveland seems to be and now he's got a wife and kids. And what a week he had. He's dominating the Jewish news. Front page in the middle. He's got his letter to the editor in there. But it's in the Colorado Sun, the Denver Post, everywhere. He stood up for Jewish people. He's a proud Jew, Ron Weinberg, Yaron Weinberg. We always have our troubadour, Dave Gunders. His song, Rather Be Right, is particularly appropriate as we talk about the Republicans, the conservatives, they get the moniker, the right. That's an advantage, right? Anyway, it's cool to talk about that, but the song's really about a verbal dispute and sometimes you got to get worked up. But wait till you hear the way Ron Weinberg, a rugby player, a pretty rough guy, Tim Hernandez, you probably don't want to mess with him. Anyway, you're going to hear the rest of this story after a word from Michael Bailey. Do enjoy Representative Ron Weinberg, followed by our troubadour Dave Gunders. I have the sound of George Brockler and the way he tried to get everybody politically divided when really this was bipartisan beauty. And then you'll hear from Chuck Schumer, who gives one of the best speeches I've ever heard about anything Jewish, let alone in the Capitol. What a speech. Please listen and enjoy. Thank you. Tell friends, subscribe, share, five stars on Apple. Sure would be nice. Thank you. Enjoy. It's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. <laughs> now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at mblaw.com. LLC.com. Now back to the Fred Silverman Show. Hey, being a lawyer is a matter of judgment. You have to know the law, the facts, but good judgment is essential. If you don't understand how Donald Trump is culpable for the crimes committed in his name, 
then I question your judgment. I have the good judgment to question Donald Trump. If you want a lawyer like that, instead of a knucklehead who believes in the MAGA propaganda, call Craig, 303-734-7156, 303-734-7156. I am Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. This is Ron. Hey, Ron Weinberg. This is Craig, Craig Silverman. Thanks for doing my podcast. Absolutely, Craig. How are you? Good. I feel a kinship with you, my brother, because I'm a Jew. You are a proud Jew. And I just like people standing up that way. So I don't know if that's a universal feeling. I'm fourth generation Denver guy. Is that around the world? Do you feel it? Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's quite compelling. I'll be honest. It's really, really odd to, to be in the situation that we're in now. I know it. Tell us about your background. Your South African Israeli background. Hey, uh, yeah. So I'm four years, or excuse me, seven years in Colorado now, and um, born and raised South Africa. Father Israeli, um, mother is South African. My uh, father left Israel to meet my mom eventually, and we moved from California to Los Angeles County to where we would have a better life. And thank God you made it to Colorado, but is it fair to say that circumstances compelled you leaving South Africa and then again California? What was wrong with yes. life in South Africa? Uh, South Africa, we ended up actually getting um, hit by thievery. Um, there were three men that entered our our premise and actually held us at gunpoint. Oh my God! And yeah, it's, uh, my father was in the IDF, and once he had finished, you know, my father's always been a kind of a big fish in a small pond. And he wanted to travel and do some, you know, seeing of the world and ended up uh, in Namibia, Zimbabwe, and eventually South Africa. And then had met my mom. We had his two kids. We got robbed. And he just said, look, enough's enough. I have to get my kids to a safer place. How old were you when that happened? I was 12. I, I can't imagine a more disturbing thing happening, except, thank God, your life was not taken. Did this happen at your home or on the streets or what? No, no, this was in our home. Um, so in our house. So it was a home invasion robbery, that sort of thing? Yes. Oh, my God. I was a prosecutor in Denver for 16 years, and I prosecuted such things. What would happen in South Africa? Would you call the police? Would anything be done? We called we called the police, but it was uh, it didn't do much. So it's uh, the police is very, you know. I wouldn't say. Well, I guess I would say there's a lot of corruption there. So you got to be a little bit cautious. So was it a, yeah? Was it a collapse of the rule of law where you were? Yes, always been. Um, you know, there there was no rule of law. So. What part of South Africa? 
I was born and raised in Johannesburg, and then I moved over to um, we moved to Durban, where my dad had a business. You know, there's a BMH congregation on Monaco and Denver, and they had a Rabbi Steinhorn who came from uh, South Africa, and he lived next door to oh. me. So I, I knew I there were not. Jews in South Africa, quite a few, right? It's part of the diaspora. Has that been dissipating? Tell people about the Jewish community in South Africa. The Jewish community is actually really, really strong. Um, I remember doing my bar mitzvah. It's uh, certainly there was a, a community. I I went to a Jewish school before it was bought out actually by a Christian community because I think once the Jewish people started seeing the writing on the wall, they they kind of picked up and left. And then you guys made your way to L.A., and I've heard you say that it was not the land of dreams, a lot of problems there. I don't know if you saw that debate between Gavin Newsom and Ron DeSantis, but one line DeSantis said that kind of rang true is, how do you screw up a great, beautiful state like California? But they seem to have done it, including L.A., which is hard to live in unless you're super rich, I suppose. Tell us about your experience there. You know, LA was gorgeous, and we we were there in two thousands. You know, so it was good in the beginning, and I don't know. You saw the the subtle decline, taxes increasing, um, not a good place for businesses. Uh, eventually, not a place to raise a family. You know, I have two two children, and that was ultimately the decision to move away. Was over taxation, larger government, and um, a homeless population that is not under control in any way, shape, or form. Boy, I can relate. And I did talk to your wife, Carolyn, in setting up this interview. And you have two kids just like my wife, Trish, and I do. And parents will do anything for their kids, right? Including finding a place with good schools. Is that what brought you to Northern Colorado and Loveland? Education and uh, the charter school system and also the, you know, the space. Um, it's not a concrete jungle from Denver all the way up to Loveland. You land in LA, LAX, and then drive to where I lived in LA. I mean, there was no gap of fields or trees, just concrete as far as the eye could see. And also not the spoiled mentality of snobbishness and entitlement. So kind of wanted my kids to learn how I learned, which is earn what you need and make sure you're, in a clean environment, and you can thrive. So how did you get involved in politics? As I understand it, you were the Larimer County Republican chairman, and you filled an appointment when a legislator passed away. Do I have that right? Yeah, so uh, I moved to Loveland, Colorado, seven years ago, and when we eventually got in, it wasn't the three months later there was an election, and on the ballot was literally to increase property taxes on themselves was the ballot measure. <laughs> and uh, I was like, what? This is never going to pass. It's the whole reason I moved away. And sure enough, the people voted to increase their property taxes on themselves. And that was very irritating. And I was frustrated. I first thing I did was Google how do I get involved in politics? Hmm. What do I do to 
be involved in decisions such as these, especially ballot measures that are aimed in decreasing people's quality of life. So, sure enough, I googled the Larimer County Republican Party, got no response from them for months. Uh, the party was dormant. And um, the day before they were actually having their committee meeting to elect the board, the chairman called me and I and said, hey, why don't you come and see how things are done? So I'm thinking, okay, let's go show up and showed up in a three-piece suit with an American fly tag. Uh, and sure enough, uh, it's, they elected me to be on the board by default because there was no one else running for the seat. So I, I got onto this board and within three months became the vice chairman because um, you know, just like the business I've built, I, I'm a doer and I like to make sure things get done as opposed to sitting around and waiting for them for outcomes for months. And then after a year and a half, they elected me to be the chairman of the organization. In in the interim, uh, they had asked me to run campaigns. So Loveland city mayor campaigns. I was the campaign manager for multiple people for running for school boards, running for city councils. I joined the Loveland Planning Commission. Didn't take me long to be appointed as the chairman of the commission the city. I got involved in Rotary, Sertoma, Iwanas, <laughs> um, head coach at Colorado State University for the rugby program. I just consumed um, being involved locally and getting to know every facet of my, my county. All right. I'm picking up a lot right there, that rugby thing. Because I understand team sports and I understand rugby is the roughest. And you look like a rugby player. And I bet if I saw you in shorts, you would have those rugby caps. So good for you. And then you talked about a three-piece suit. And I've been watching you on the legislative floor in the well. And there ain't nothing like a good three-piece suit. I'm an old trial lawyer, and I have a few in my closet, although I'm not sure they fit just right. They're too big, by the way. Anyway, are you telling me that part of it was wearing a three-piece suit almost everywhere? Did you get known for that? It, it was. I, you know, there was a gentleman uh, when I worked back for a, a corporation before I owned my own company. He He always... It just always looked good, right? You, you, and and I, and I have to ask him one day. I, you know, I was like, what, what's up with the, the bow ties, the ties, the, the shoe? What's, what's going on? And he, and he, he said, look, when you, when you wake up in the morning and you look good, you feel good. And when you feel good, you do good things. And when you do good things, you make the world a better place. And that always resonated with me. So. I try to take it seriously and, you know. That is so I, I cool. Live, I live by those words. And, and I look at the athletes, not rugby players, probably maybe in the pro rugby. They come in the stadium styling. You see football players and basketball players, they come in with their suits a lot of times, and it's all about making that statement. I'm ready for business. I'm looking sharp. Yes. But I'd say it's the best it's the best that sets it apart. If a man can wear a vest, and do you ever rock suspenders too? 
<laughs> he he did everything. What about uh, you? The guy didn't make. Oh, of course. I, well, not suspenders. I'm a belt guy. I like belt buckles. Um, our, our minority leader, Representative uh, Minority Leader Lynch, actually owns his own company where he does his own belt buckles. One of the first buckles I ever received, being the vice chairman of the party, was a Colorado rectangle buckle. Um, and quite frankly, that's my go-to. Nice. It's my lucky buckle. And uh, yeah, I like my belts. I like my vest. And uh, I like to look good. I like the expression of lucky buckle. And you were lucky enough to, I mean, that's a path to success. And you're kind of showing the American way. It doesn't take that long. Get involved. Do your thing. I, I'm the epitome of the American dream. With the three I, my, my parents suit. moved here and lost everything. And um, they I've, lost it in America. There's no way in any other country in the world. Did they Sorry, lose, say it again? They lost it in South Africa or in America too? They lost it in America. The currency exchange between South African dollars and American dollars are completely backwards. So my, my dad did everything he could to make sure, you know, me and my brother and my my mom had an excellent life. We had, he worked many hours to secure our education and, um, you know, our freedoms. Nice. Where did you get educated? I didn't, actually. I, I barely, barely got through high school. I was uh, not a good student in school. I tried community college for a little bit. I worked every end job you can imagine. Um, eventually got hired on while, you know, the Cheesecake Factory corporate office gave me a, a chance at a IT administration role. And they changed my life, to be frank. The, they set me on the pathway to become very well versed in information technology and with all the information I, I got from that corporation, I started my own company and became successful fairly, fairly quickly. Did you ever come to the Cheesecake Factory in lower downtown Denver? Of course. I frequent it very often, actually. I try to give them my business every time I can and my wife loves the Cheesecake Factory. So do I. I mean, it's kind of like saying you like popular music, but my law firm was across the street for decades. And I could go in there and they'd bring those rolls or the fresh bread. Yep. The dark bread, the white bread. Anyway, now I'm getting hungry and going to attack the challah tonight. But I want to get back to, and now you're a big IT guy, right? The company you have is IT? Yes. I've got a. Cybersecurity server management for small businesses in Southern California and Northern Colorado. Do you want to give a shout out? Heck, you're giving me your time. Let, let's advertise. Are you looking for customers? Uh, no, no, we're we're good. I, I don't uh, I don't like to do political theater or anything anything like that. All right. um, um, if you're finding IT, you have IT issues. Just give me a call. But no, we're right. We're very easy to find. Very organic company. I understand. Don't mix milk with meat, as they say. Although I don't keep kosher, <laughs> but I understand the rules. Anyway, just sure. I, I mean, there are so many degrees of being yeah. Jewish, and it really doesn't matter. But uh, are you Orthodox, observant? Uh, how would you describe yourself in terms of your Jewishness? I would say ref 
form conservative, um, you know, make sure we observe and keep close to the ideology and the traditions, instill them in my children, and uh, maintain my heritage, so to speak. You think that Jews understand other Jews well, and maybe we do, maybe we don't. I don't know if you saw this new leader of Argentina who came to New York and went to the Orthodox Rabbi Schneerson's grave, and he's he put a yarmulke on, and he's a radical libertarian. Anyway, I'm trying to figure out this guy, and uh, sometimes when I see people who are super religious, I'm trying to figure them out too because they're observing the same faith but in a different way. I think you understand that. And in the Gold Dome, let, let's get right to the lead, which is your encounter with some Jew haters in the Colorado Capitol. That's what I'm going to call them. And uh, there are a lot of Jewish people under the Gold Dome trying to work on legislation. It happens that Jared Polis is Jewish, Phil Weiser, Jenna. Griswold, and a lot of Democrat legislators. But then there's a guy named Ron Weinberg, who's a new state rep. And uh, just to back up, how did you get appointed? I know it was your three-piece suit and all that, but a popular guy died and you were appointed by acclamation. Let's fill in that gap before we get to how you became the Republican Jew uh, in the legislature in November. Sure. Um, the previous minority leader, which was Hugh McKean, uh, passed away by heart attack. And um, with all, I would think, with all the activity within my community for the many years, uh, people sought to me to fill and requested that I I seek the assignment. So reluctantly, I <laughs> accepted, and and here I am. Why reluctantly? What an honor. Because I didn't know anything about the seat. I had never had any aspirations of seating uh, in the House or the Senate or political office. So I just didn't know what I was getting into, and I don't typically accept things where I don't know. And how did you like it? Was there a better experience? I bet it was like jury duty. Once you did it, you got into it. I got into it, and I uh, figured out how to be effective. And the message I'm trying to bring back to the table is the sanity to politics, so to speak. And I really want to be the the unification in that house. Uh, I said in my speech last week when we were attacked that uh, we are not enemies. And uh, I, um, I thought that was beautiful. I, I think appreciate that. So, so, um, yeah, let me just ask you this. Are you you running in 2024 to retain the seat? I did announce re-election a couple weeks before the special session. Um, (laughs) I'll tell you one thing. uh, God works in mysterious ways, and God is good. uh, Because if I I did the special session uh, (laughs) before I... Announce re-election, I don't know if I would have announced re-election. But you're not going to go back on it. We'll get into what no, happened. No, I will, um, yeah, I, I will, I've had a lot of support piecing from Republicans and Democrats, uh, constituents, my family, my wife, Carolyn, 
she she stands you know firmly next to me and yes uh, w without the support piecing of representative winner uh down in trinidad and people like representative or minority leader lynch i just i wouldn't be able to to say yes right to go but, again. but in fairness and i'll let you tell the story um, it seems to me that a lot of the Democrats were disgusted by what Elizabeth Epps did. And in fairness, they said, hey, because you stood up right when she talked about ethnic cleansing, and I'll let you tell the story, but the Democrats said, hey, we, we should let Ron Weinberg talk if he wants to. And you did, and your fellow Republicans rallied around you, and I thought it was beautiful. Let's just back up to this special session. I have a lot of national, international listeners, people who listen in Ukraine, et cetera. Here in Colorado, we had a ballot proposal put forth by Jared Polis on this property tax issue. It was something that the voters rejected. Nonetheless, a special session was called, and essentially the same thing got passed. The Republicans got steamrolled, but in the process, we've had October 7th, the Hamas atrocities on Israel, Israel fighting back, and it was brought to the State House. How? How, how did it become part of this special session, Representative Weinberg? So, yes, like you said, uh, Proposition HH, which was proposed by the supermajority party and the legislator, uh, was put on the ballot, and it did fail. I think, luckily for everybody, it failed. So um, Jared Polis decided to call a special session to fix, uh, in some cases, 50 to 300 percent property tax hikes throughout the state. And sure enough, uh, we got back in that room and we passed seven plus pieces of legislation that literally didn't help anything for the property assessments. And then on top of that, Representative Epps decided to turn one of the bills, which was feeding children, into a fiasco of pro-Palestinian, anti-Israel rhetoric. And even and before frankly, that, even before that, hadn't uh, aren't they the communists and the Palestinian rights people? Didn't they disrupt your the first part of your meeting? Oh yes, multiple times. Um, it was they were in the gallery. The 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 second day we were there and shouting at us 20 minutes in a gallery, uh, Palestinian flags draped over the the gallery and no order, no control within the, the house. And they were saying free Palestine from the river to the sea, stuff like that? Absolutely. And everything anti-Semitic under the sun. Uh, I found myself leaving the room because, you know, being built like a rugby player. <laughs> Um, yeah. I, tend to, I understand. Tend to I understand my... the rage. I mean, what Hamas <laughs> did, and these people are going to rally that way. Anyway, what did you do? I understand so you got I, an I, Israeli I, flag. I, Tell everybody about that. So I got, I got the, I, I got the Israeli flag. I put on my desk very professionally. The American flag, and the Colorado flag, and the Israeli flag, obviously lowered a little bit less than the American flag for flag etiquette for the country, and. I was asked to not display. I was brought into an office and said, look, we don't want to fuel the situation. And, you know, 
any other day I would have said, I understand and I'll take it off, but I refused. And from there, it just was a, a spike of, okay, we, res- we respect your decision. And then immediately the Colorado and American flags were brought in, purchased by the state and handed out on everyone's desk. And the purpose of that was was to drown out the flags that I had placed on my desk. And then some of your colleagues found Israeli memorabilia. I have to confess, in my house, I said to my wife, where's my Israeli-American pen? Because I had so many of those. <laughs> People look in your caucus. They, they brought out Israeli stuff to support you? They were absolutely supportive. Um, the 19, including myself, Republicans in the House of Representatives stood fast and stood aggressively with the notion that what had been conducted on October 7th was incorrect and wrong. And they were not going to stand with this type of hatred. Well, I agree with that. And let me tell you, on the podcast, I had a Dr. Michael Sinjanae on, I don't know, about four episodes ago. And she was the one assigned to work with Tim Hernandez, who celebrated Hamas on October 7th. And then he allegedly apologized, but he's back to talking about Jews committing genocide, which is exactly the explicit charter of Hamas that wants to commit genocide against the Jews. But I don't, ex- I don't like Tim Hernandez. Any apology he gave is not accepted by me. I've met Elizabeth Epps, and uh, I don't like her anymore because she joined in with Tim Hernandez. And uh, Representative Jodad talked about genocide, too, which I think is way out of line. So those three Democrats really disappoint me. But it was Epps that you got into it with, but Hernandez, too. Tell us about your encounters with those three and anybody else. You know, I had found that Epps wanted to watch the room burn. And there was a decision that could have been made at that point was to encourage the violence and the aggression and the negativity, or you could make it positive. You're talking about the night. The that, you're talking about the night you gave your big speech, right? Toward uh, on the well, Sunday. Well, was the day? It was the the last day of special sessions on the Sunday, right? They wouldn't let me speak the night before. No, I understand that, but I understand you've had yeah. some brush-ups against Tim Hernandez. Literally, tell us about him. Oh, yes. Um, well, the evening when we didn't know Epps was, Representative Epps was going to do this, this political theater for Epps. And it was nearly 40 minutes of uh, her talking about ethnic cleansing. That was the big finish, right? So that the yep, Jews I, are I ethnic cleansers, right? I asked her, why, why wouldn't you discuss anything to me? I'm a reasonable conservative Republican in the House. I've worked with Democrats on the other side of the aisle multiple times on my first session. Uh, I I come across as a reasonable gentleman that we can speak to each other, and even if we disagree, um, Representative Hernandez uh, came down to the well while I was in the well, and didn't really know what was going on at the time because we were discussing, and bumped his chest into my in my back, and I didn't really kind of figure anything of it and know where, where it was going and. So 
Now, isn't isn't there a law in most progressive states that if you are a rugby player, you should have a warning sign on your back? Warning, (laughs) rugby player. I mean, does Tim Hernandez know you played rugby? I don't think Tim Hernandez knows anything about anything. Um, Everything that I saw from his first four days of interaction at the House of Representatives quite frankly, hopped around like a clown, uh, not knowing what to do or where to be. And he was out of his element, like a, like a little child. And he tried so hard to be interactive and liked. And then instead, what his legacy ends up being for four days in the house is an anti-Semite and uh, a bully. And I don't think it's going to bode well for him. You know, the first time I saw you, Representative, was at that pro-Israel rally. I was really proud of you. You got to speak after Daphna Michelson Janay, who explained to everybody how she had approached uh, Hernandez. But uh, you heard all of that. That I, You were the only Republican there. Did it feel lonely for you to be uh, the sole GOP guy? It's, it was a little nerve wracking. I'll be honest. It's, I, I'll be quite honest. I actually didn't know General Griswold or Phil Weiser were Jewish. I got introduced to a lot of state representatives that evening. I mean, sorry, that afternoon. And I didn't know the, um, the Jewish system within the state. That's what you need my podcast for. I I keep track of who's (laughs) who in the Hebrew world in Colorado. And you are in there now. You're big time because Elizabeth Epps, she made a fool of herself. And I heard you describe it. And you said she went on for 40 minutes. And damn, at the end of the session, I've been in court when crap like that happens. It was ridiculous. Describe it and why it was that everybody agreed that, hey, let's let Ron Weinberg respond. So the Democratic leadership in the beginning, kind of made a big mistake. I, and, and I don't think they knew they made a mistake. It was 11 at night. It was, uh, you know, everyone's very tired trying to get to the end of the special session. It's a very aggressive special session. And this whole thing went down, and I don't think anybody knew why and where and how and what. The All we had heard at this point that if something was going to happen, it was going to be pro-Palestinian, they were going to shut down talking to an hour and let it be done with. Well, nobody anticipated what words were going to come out of the mouth. So once it started, it got, you know, started pretty, pretty mild and then just got more aggressive and more aggressive and more aggressive. So I eventually walked into the well there was a uh, multiple times that they had to pause because some of the things that would come out of her mouth and, and, and leadership would not stop it. You know, if, if Republicans, which we've had multiple situations where Republicans on our side of the aisle have gone in and said way less damning things. And then the whole room was silenced. Who was it? Who was it who, had the, who had the gavel? Because uh, Julie McCluskey had given the gavel to somebody else. Who was that gentleman? Yeah. So how it works is um, 
Speaker of the House, Smoklowski, doesn't have the gavel during the readings. The, the chair has the gavel. And, and that evening it was uh, Andrew Basenecker. Okay. Keep going. And so nobody gaveled her out. I requested 60 seconds, which would be to take her silly motion that had nothing to do with anything and almost to say, look, I recommend a no vote on this amendment. And then we would kind of see who in that chamber is pro-Israel and anti-terrorist. And um, I think Democratic leadership in their own rights, protecting themselves, they had to do everything they can to make sure it didn't go to vote. And after her 40-minute fiasco, political theater nonsense and lies against the Jewish people and Israel, turned into a, oh, well, this doesn't fit within the title, so we don't even have to vote, and we're adjourned for the night. But not so fast. Ron Weinberg went to the well, and you really didn't have prepared notes. Did you think about what you were going to say, or was it all spontaneous? I'm going to play this sound for my audience, but what was going through your head? So they did, they did actually adjourn for the evening. I only got home at 1.30 in the morning. I was beyond furious, um, uncontrollably furious, to be quite frank. I had uh, contacted Minority Leader Lynch and said, I don't think I can come in tomorrow for the last day. I'm going to zoom in. I, I don't want to be that legislator who's going to be aggressive or agitate. Well, there, this or, is because the upset harassed you from the balcony gallery the night before? No, that was the next day. Oh, that the, was next the next day. day. Okay, we're going to get there. Okay, yeah, keep yeah. going. So, so, so after the evening where they shut, shut down her amendment during second readings, um, we all adjourned and went home for the evening and then had to be back again in the morning at 10 o'clock. So I, that night I said nobody knew I was coming in. In fact, the majority leader, the Speaker of the House, and the minority leader all got notice from me saying, I don't feel well. I'm not coming in to be in person. I'll be on Zoom. And I actually showed up 10 minutes before in the morning without telling anybody because something had spoke to me in the morning when I woke up that said I needed to be in that room. And you needed to put on that three-piece suit again. <laughs> and I, you know, I'm not expecting anything to happen. I've got lack of sleep, no breakfast. I uh, don't know what to expect. Just think we're going to end the day, and I'm going to do my duty as an elected official, which is to be in that room and deal with whatever needs to be dealt with. And sure enough, Epps, on third readings, wants to do the exact same thing as she did not 12 hours ago. And when she gets into the well to start doing it again, I stand up at my desk and I break decorum. And I said, are we really doing this again? And I said, I'm not going to take this anymore. And I walked down into the well again, like I did previous that night. I sat in the well. In fact, when when, we, when the accusations started flying around about genocide, about the Jewish people, I didn't even sit anymore. I couldn't. My legs were so agitated. I had to stand. I stood in frustration, just wanting 60 seconds to 
give a response. And the next day, she starts up again. Not to mention, in the gallery, again, before she even speaks, they brought 10 children, they look like, with Palestinian flags and communist fists in the air, uh, sitting there, uh, waiting for Epps to be this savior to their whole false thought. So McCluskey stops the proceedings. Uh, the speaker pro tem degree Kennedy puts everything on pause and they pull me into the side of the room and uh, to the chief clerk's office. And they asked me, what do I want? And they explained to me that I could do a point of personal privilege at the end of the day and take as much time as I want. Or I could do a 10 minute in thirds. We're allowed 10 minutes to respond. And I said, quite frankly, I want both. Because what happened the night before was horrible and what is happening currently was even worse. And they said, okay, we're going to have a talk. Democratic leadership went back. They had their private conversation. And sure enough, they called me into the room. And they were willing to grant me both a point of personal privilege and the rebuttal for the 10 minutes, which and when you say they, they have to do. When you say they, who are you talking about? Democratic Speaker leadership? Speaker of the House, McCluskey. Democratic, um, Democratic Speaker of the House, McCluskey. Democratic Majority Leader, uh, Monica Duran. Democratic um, Speaker Pro Tem, Degree Kennedy. And Minority Leader, uh, Mike Lynch. Um, nice. They, I, they stepped I, up. Yeah, I, I'm understanding this story a lot better because what I watched was the second day and you told me you had to put up with it and it was so aggravating that you didn't even think you were going to come back on Sunday, but you suited up, got back there, and then she went into her same act and everybody said you should get a chance to respond it's almost like you became the de facto, I don't know. Once I gave a, a roast for Mike Rhodes and I said I was the DJ, the designated Jew. You know what I mean? So were you like the designated Jew and that's why you got to respond because you were willing to take on Elizabeth Epps? You know what? I hadn't seen any defense come from my Democratic colleagues. Uh, on the Jewish side, we have a few there that uh, just were, were quiet and didn't say anything. And I, I don't know why, but, you know, well, that's I, have where I'm proud of you. That are from, yeah. <laughs> I have grandparents that, you know, suffered atrocities on, in, I just envisioned. In the Holocaust, right? Then you have. Yeah, Your family yeah. Touched my by grandmother was in Auschwitz, watched the whole family die. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Phil, Phil Weiser's family is like that. His mom, uh, born in the Warsaw Ghetto, I believe. And, and then Michael Bennett yes, as well with his, the Kledgeman family. Did you know Michael Bennett's mother survived the Holocaust? I did. Michael Bennett gave me <laughs> one of the biggest hugs uh, at that Jewish rally. And uh, we had a little uh, exchange of words that were 
I'd never met him before. Now, let me ask you this. Did you know Jared Polis is Jewish? I did. I did know that. He Did um, you know that he's gay? Yes, of course. Oh, I'm just <laughs> All right, keep going. You when he um, when he invited, when I first I got in the seat, uh, the the Polish administration invited uh, me to his Hanukkah party, and um, that was one of my first interactions with the governor. I've known Jared for a while, just through being a broadcaster and a lawyer, and he once he got me into that Bibi Netanyahu speech about the Iran nuke deal. Do you remember that? The one that Biden boycotted and Obama it caused a big fuss, might have caused all the worries. But Jared Polis did not boycott that speech. Diana DeGette did. Anyway, that's my encounter with Jared Polis in a Jewish context. But he's a proud Jewish guy, and I'm glad you knew that. And of course, I'm having a little fun with you, but I just was proud of you after... After she said that ethnic cleansing part toward the end, the, the one thing she said that I'm going to play the sound for my audience that I think people have skated over, and maybe you got so mad about ethnic cleansing you didn't hear it, but she was kind of defeated at that point. And she said, I know I'm going to lose, right? Like 64 to 1. It sounded like she didn't even have any allies at that point, really, except those people in the gallery. And then her own Democratic caucus was saying, hey, you're being so unfair, we're going to let this Republican Jewish guy talk against you. And wouldn't you agree that they're kind of fed up with her too? I would. Um, I I got many, many phone calls from the that side of the aisle and hugs and embraces the next day and and the same day. A lot of them stood with me once... Everything had transpired, and I think there was a decision to be made in that well and in that room and in that chamber, and it was either to continue the negativity and the hatred or to focus on the better nature of a lot of the people in that room. And that's where you were so beautiful. And honestly, I salute you, Representative and that's the first time we've ever talked, but you could have gotten up there raging like a rugby player, right? And you did have a loud <laughs> voice, but you were talking about love and getting along and, hey, we've got a big job to do. And you were the adult in the room, and yet Epps kept harassing you from the, the cheap seat. She went up in the gallery and it was cool that your colleagues came and surrounded you. And I thought that was kind of a symbol. She had talked at the end, I'm all alone. And you weren't alone. All your colleagues were with you. It would have been cool if the Democrats would have circled you too. But how did that feel? You know what? They, they were. They the, did. The Democrats were there. Nobody could see it. It's um, Nice. They Tell were in about front. That. And it, it, was, it was very... It was the... I believe reasoning for the decision to promote unity between the caucuses. It, it behind me were my colleagues, and it's not. It's not. It's rarely appropriate for a mix of colleagues to be in the well, which is a shame, regardless. But 
if you stand in favor and in respect of what somebody is saying, you stand at your stand at attention, so to speak. And I have pictures that I only saw later, um, but there were many Democrats that stood in unison and in agreeance with, number one, they did not agree with this despicable, unstatesmanlike uh, situation. And um, it, they, were, they were embarrassed that the Republicans have to be the ones in the room with the sanity. Right, but the guy with the gavel, he also told her, in effect, to shut up, and he stopped it. He said, Representative Weinberg, let's restore order, and she wouldn't shut up. It was ridiculous, right? I mean, for a representative to do that, who would you single out on the Democrat side who was standing there in support of you, who you felt really was on your side? Oh, my goodness, not just one, um, Representative Byrd. Uh, she is one of the most fantastic representatives you've ever seen in your lifetime. Um, Representative Wilford, uh, Representative Tatone, uh, shoot, Representative Hamrick, Representative Lindsay. Doherty, Representative Doherty, for Pete's sake, uh, Representative uh, Majority Leader Duran, Speaker Pro Tem Kennedy, Diggory Kennedy, uh, Speaker McCluskey. These are, and I'm forgetting people, uh, Representative Ortiz. Um, yeah. Well, that's good. That's, I'm, I'm that's, definitely forgetting people out of the emotion. But no, but that's good. Uh, that's bipartisanship. And that's what you were talking about. That's so beautiful because I didn't see that picture. You know the feed we get. We only saw the people who had your back, but to hear the Democrats had your front too, that's cool. I don't know if that's been reported. Has that been reported? I don't think any of this was reported. It was shoved under the rug. The story has never been told. It's, it was very upsetting, to be honest. Have you read the letter that Phil Weiser signed with about 150 prominent Jewish Democrats condemning these people for what they did? I did. I did see the, the letter. I didn't know he had signed. I, I, I was actually under the impression no Democrat had uh, signed that letter. Well, I heard, I heard Phil Weiser did. Anyway... It, okay. I would expect that, but I, I'm not positive. I wonder if you had time to listen to Chuck Schumer, Senate Majority Leader, and his speech about anti-Semitism this week. I did not. I'm going to play that, too, at the end of my podcast, because I think it's a historic speech. I used to think Bibi Netanyahu's speech was the most important Jewish speech in modern times, but I'm disappointed in him, especially after learning that they had the Hamas war plans. And anyway, uh, but Chuck Schumer, even if you're a Republican, I think you're going to love it because he's like those Democrats circling you and it was aimed at the squad. It was aimed at the same type people who are giving problems to the Democrats nationally. And Chuck Schumer explained anti-Semitism and why Jewish people like you and me and 
Jared Polis and Phil Weiser and Jenna Griswold, it, it, it affected us badly on October 7th. We're a tiny little people, and the the rape of Jewish women, and the, I mean, we're all kind of family, and it, it affected Jews more than other people. I, I still don't know how to deal with it. I'm still dealing with grief. How about you? I have family in Israel, so I, I I talk to them on a regular basis. I have friends. I I will never feel their pain. Um, I can only hear it and empathize. But my mission now, being in the position I'm in, needs to bring back, use this to bring back the sanity to politics. We, we're not enemies, Democrats and Republicans. And I, that, that has now become seeing how many people can come together over an issue that has nothing to do with right or left. It's like the great Ronald Reagan said, the great negotiator, right? There's no right or left. It's up or down. We're either going to rise together and be successful together as a people, or we're going to sink faster than a ship taking on water. And, and that's my mission at this point is, is to unify the, the state. We, we've gotten in the mess. There's too, many, there's too many people that are elected that believe in one thing, that it surrounded themselves with an echo chamber, and that's not good for the citizens of the state. I totally agree. And there's a lot of Jew hating on the far left, and I think we saw that sure. in the state capitol. But I also worry about it on the far right. And the leading presidential nominee candidate for the GOP almost certainly is going to be Donald Trump, who's talking about vermin and a poisoned bloodstream. And he had that Thanksgiving dinner a year ago with Kanye West and Nick Fuentes. And I'm real worried about Jew hating on the right. Are you? I haven't seen it. Um, I haven't, I'm not involved too much at the national stage, to be honest. I'm worried about Jew hating, period. And wherever it exists, you will find me at the forefront of uh, not only defense, but being aggressive with it and making sure it doesn't happen. That's the perfect way to end. And you've got kids and Shabbat, and my kids are older, but we're really trying to give a better world to our kids. We've got Jewish little yes. kids. What kind of a world are we giving them but I think it's a better world because of you, Ron Weinberg, and what you did during that special session. And and I'm proud of you standing up as a proud Jew, and I really appreciate you coming on my podcast. You're very kind. Toda Rabbah. Thank you for having me. Shabbat Shalom. Toda Rabbah. Shabbat Shalom. He's the best lawyer I know because he's my lawyer. He's Michael Bailey. I think you pioneered this mobile estate planning, and lots of lawyers are doing it now. And boy, are your clients happy and satisfied. It's convenient for the client. It certainly is fun to be able to go and visit people where they are, whether it's at your house or at one of the offices, just to make it more convenient for you. And then it's more fun for me because I get to go out and about and meet people all over the place and help them out. What's the website, Michael? It is mobileestateplanning.com. What's the best phone number to call? 720 394 
888-888-6887 is my direct line. Michael Bailey, that's our lawyer. Trish loves him. I do too. Thanks, Michael. You're welcome, Craig. Hey, everybody. For all of your legal needs, why not start with me? 734-7156-303-734-7156. I've been practicing law in Colorado for over 42 years, and I know a lot of people. And if I can't do right by you, I can steer you in the right direction. My number, 303-734-7156. Ask for Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims, a voice for people with legal difficulties. Hey, before we leave the Ron Weinberg episode, let me tell you, we have the sound of what he said on the House floor that was so impressive and well-received. It was about love. I want you to hear it. This is what he said, surrounded by not just Republicans, but by Democrats, too, who appreciated him taking on Elizabeth Epps. We are not enemies. And I believe more than now, it is for our constituents to see that we can get along. It took me months to convince people that the national stage, the national circus, is not in this chamber. I have called many of you true friends. We are of different backgrounds, different beliefs, different colors, different religions. Some of us don't even believe in God. And I don't care. We are of the trans community. We are of the Christian pastor community. We are Jews. We are Gentiles. We are men. We are women. This past four days has truly been hard because I I came from a session of bipartisanship to a special session of nothing. I ask you to stand with me today. Be the example this state needs. We are sick of the division. We are not enemies. We are allowed to have different principles and different think- and thoughts. We can come to the table together and fix the problems of the state. That is our job. Everything else is meaningless. There are atrocities being committed around the world. We all stand against them. No one, no one in this chamber stands for genocide. I firmly believe that. No Democrat, no Republican stood in this chamber and wants genocide of people. We stand shoulder to shoulder, hand in hand with the same mission, 
And I ask you again today, be the example Colorado wants you to see. See the clarity of unity. Stop the division. Be willing to speak to one another in a humbled manner that makes sense. Present your arguments, negotiate, debate. That is politics. The founding fathers of this great nation that built a country for you and me built it not on the premise of Republican or Democrat. They built it on the premise of freedom for all of mankind with the rights to protest and the rights to freedom of speech. I stand firmly behind that and I ask you to do the same. If it is one thing you will never catch me do in this chamber, it will impugn you. I will never seek to understand your motives as malicious or hateful. And with that, I ask that you do the same for me. There is a crisis in our world today. If we do not stand as a body united, what good are we to the people we represent? This session was about business to relieve the people of a burden. And though we are concluding today again on a harmful end, I ask you to take these lessons into the session January 10th and self-reflect. We are not enemies. And we need to stop considering each other as such. The runoffs will have their say. They are allowed to do so. Bring the center back for the hope of Colorado. Colorado is begging for the division of party to stop, which is why we lead the country in unaffiliate voter. I am grateful to serve in this seat. I am grateful to serve my constituents. I am grateful to hear your stories, to understand where you come from, what your backgrounds are, convince me why your bills are good. I only ask the same for myself, and my fellow colleagues only ask the same for themselves. We are from different walks of life, and if we don't look at that as what makes us better, then this chamber is not worth seating in. I beg and I plead that the division stop and that we take this job to the core of the voter that will be impacted by the pieces of legislation we pass in this chamber. Bring back the sanity to politics. Representative Weinberg, I'm sorry, I did not give you a one minute warning. You were in the middle of a thought there, but you are about 15 seconds from being out of time. We are the backbone of this society. And Western civilization relies on you and me being able to get along and pass good legislation. 
I ask you join me and my colleagues with doing so in the upcoming session. And I'm grateful for all of you, and I love you. Regardless of your backgrounds and your walks of life, I respect you, I will listen to you, and I love you. Thank you. Michael Bailey, a friend, a lawyer, a sponsor. Tell everybody how you bring peace of mind to their life. So by setting up your estate plan, you know what's going to happen to your stuff when you die. You know where it's going to go, you know who's going to get it. We've got everything in place so we're not running to a court to try to get guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible. But then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So, you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency, but the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined. It's all set up. So there's, it's like the, the smooth transition of power. That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical power of attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like Michael Bailey, because who should have this? It's probably somebody close. Who do you trust most among your children to make that call? These are the hard and good questions that you ask every day, right, Michael? Right. And if you ask them beforehand, when you're not in the middle of a crisis, then when a crisis hits, we're not trying to do crisis management and medical emergency and everything else. We're going, okay, we've got a smooth transition of power here. We've got a smooth who's in charge, and we can have that all flow so that we can focus on the care. There are so many things in life that you can fill out a form and save yourself money, save yourself heartache. Some people die out of nowhere quickly, but more often you get sick, you have medical difficulties, so it all goes together. But your system works, it works beautifully. What is the best way to contact you these days? Best way, uh, you can give me a call. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. Or you can go online to michaelbaileylawllc.com. And there is a an appointment page on my website that you can use. So either way is fine. Thanks, Michael. Troubadour. Hi, Craig. I think it's okay to be a little selfish, don't you? Yes. As expressed in your beautiful song this week. What's the saying in the Bible? If, if not for others, if you're not for others, who will be? And if you're not for yourself, Rabbi what, are, what are you? Something like that. I know I'm, this is if terrible. I am, if I am not for myself, there you then go. who am then, I? Then who am I? But see, if see? I'm only for myself. Then what am then I? What? Thank you. I love that. So anyway, getting to your question about selfishness, a little selfishness is good. Too much, not so good. Right. That word right, think about it. Most people are right-handed, and most people would rather be right, which is the name of your song. And if you think about politics, which I do all the time, isn't it kind of an advantage for the Republicans to be referred to as the right well, I can see that if if people, you know, if 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 our minds actually absorb that language in that way, but I don't know. Maybe. It's kind of like the Democrats. I think had an advantage with that name. We are the Democratic Party because even though people say, "Hey, we're a republic, we're not a democracy," I think I was brought up to revere democracy, not 
republicanism. Right. I see your I see your point. It is an advantage. I like the I like the idea of Democrat uh, because right, it alludes to democracy. Yes. Right. Did you ever think about writing a song "Rather Be Left"? <laughs> um, you no. gotta laugh out loud if you're gonna laugh. You know that well, that silence well, doesn't make, work. You well, gotta crack a good but joke. You, I'm saying I'm looking at you and you're laughing a little. It's silent like me. So anyway, acknowledge your smile and just move on. Although when with the word "the left." I might be a little too sensitive, but certain people say the left and I hear the Jews. Have you ever heard that? Well, I mean, in history, the you know, Jews were kind of um, coupled with communism. Oh, you mean that whole Karl Marx thing? Yes. Yes. Yes, that does, does come into play. Well, what more about so, Groucho? Though? I would say more social. Harpo. Didn't that make up for it? Sure, I, they make up for it. Right. And haven't we proved we're not communists, most of us? I think so. You know, fuck those communists. They were down at the convention center protesting Jared Polis. They're aligned with the Palestinians. They broke a window near the big bear. They defaced the big blue bear. Were you there today? Or yesterday? Was no, this yesterday? No. This was yesterday, right? I don't work right? downtown. Okay. But, you know, it's a schlep to get down there and maybe a little dangerous. I did not go to Jewish National Fund. Do you know what that charity is, Janet? I do not. Yes, you do. You just don't think about it. Those little uh, uh, charity boxes that you grew up with. Sure. And JNF had us planting trees right. all over Israel when we were kids. Right, like UNICEF in public school. It's a Jewish national fund. It's, it's like the United Way for Israel. But they protested it last night. Jared Polis, he spoke up even though he gets ripped on Denver Trump radio, you know, whereas he... He showed up, he gave a speech, he defied the protesters. Good for him. Yes. And Phil Weiser wrote a letter this week with a bunch of top Jewish Dems condemning Elizabeth Epps. Do you know who she is? She's the one who harassed our guest, Ron Weinberg, while he was trying to talk in support of Israel after she had just accused Israel of something awful. Are you ready? Yeah. She accused Israel of ethnic cleansing. Does that bother you? Right. Of course. Of course. I mean, as a supporter of Israel, nobody wants to hear that. I mean, you hear Israel now. I mean, you know, anti-Semites will say what they want to say about Israel and about Jews. Um, ethnic cleansing? No. They, they haven't shown to be very willing partners uh, in terms of living, you know, side by side with the Palestinians. Neither have the Palestinians. Um, I've just been reading about the history of, of, you know, since 1948 and 67. And there was the Madrid agreements and Oslo and everything, ultimately Camp David, and just how these tr talks have continued to fail. That's a long ways from ethnic cleansing. Right. Right, and even before 48, with the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem in bed with Adolf Hitler, dirty deals he holed up in Berlin during the war. There's quite a history there, and uh, even my dogs object to it. But your song is so perfect because Elizabeth Epps went off, and then the Democratic leadership is shamed of her, just like Chuck Schumer gave a beautiful speech. I'm playing it at the end of this podcast in its entirety because he calls out the anti-Semites on the left 
people we thought were our allies. Right. But you know what? Elizabeth Epps really didn't have any allies as she harassed Ron Weinberg at the end of this special session. And Ron Weinberg uh, got to speak because the Jewish Dems said, hey, we need the other side. And he spoke beautifully, and I'm I'm glad that he's guest on my show. But it was uh, really a war of words like that, which is perfect for your song, Rather Be Right. And it starts off with a verbal altercation, right? That's right. And... and and you, you're you not in the giving in mood. And it's like Israel, as we speak, there was a ceasefire. Thank God some hostages got released, but the majority not released. And then who violates the ceasefire? Hamas starts throwing missiles at Israel. And what's Israel to do? It's a terrible situation, and it just makes people angry. You've got a word in your song that I don't think it's in any of your other songs, rage. Right. What a word, rage. Is that healthy? Is it ever necessary, productive? It's real. It's so real. It's real. Yeah. It's a. It's it's a. It's it's a it's a valid um, emotion. And that's why I think there are three things that have to happen here for there to be peace, and that is, we need the hostages back. We need those tunnels removed. And Hamas leadership has to go. Now, you do need to be surgical if you can. But if they're top leaders hiding in the basement of a, a building with 500 people in it, that's a tough, you know, it's a terrible calculation. Even if there's five people or one other person, it's war. It's horrible. Yes, it is horrible. And and I think that's where a lot of the left feels so self righteous. You know, I mean, it's it is it's 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 um it's angering when you do hear about children being killed, innocent children. You know, they say women and children, uh, civilians. I mean, I mean, there are, there are a lot of people who are suffering who've done no wrong, and um, more than suffering. I mean, the, they've lost their lives, and the ones who haven't lost their lives have will be you know will be scarred for the rest of their lives. I mean. These kinds of things are easy to, um, you know, t- to take issue with and to blame Israel for. Right. On the other hand, I think people who speak out so willingly that way, they're forgetting about what Israel has been through and the atrocities that were, that were laid on them. And the, and the fact that uh, Hamas is still a real threat and wants to continue to, you know, pur- it, it, purge it, the Middle East of Israel. So anyway. Yes. It's. Both sides can easily be righteous on this. But it starts out with that premise that in their charter, they say no Jews in this part of the world. So that's kind of a deal breaker. They're the ones who have uh, advocated, in effect, for genocide. There are no Jews in these Arab Islamic countries. We've seen what happens. We need one tiny refuge, the Mizrahi. The, the North African Jews who had to leave their countries to go to Israel, where are they supposed to go now? They're not welcome anyplace else. They've been there since 48 and before and before. So it is, it is sad. But you know what made me laugh the other day as we talked about politics and the need for Trump to be defeated? And we worried about Biden making it. Right. And remember who I brought up as an alternative? To Biden? What? Um, as an alternative, oh, 
Um, oh, yes, the governor of uh, California. Right. Yeah. And what's his name? <laughs> See, you make yourself laugh out loud. It's yeah, Gavin Newsom. Thank you. Now, what do you know about him? Democrat. He did a great speech. He's got great hair. He's got a beautiful young family. And uh, he took on Ron DeSantis on Hannity. And wow, those two had a war of words for the better part of two hours. And I thought Gavin Newsom just kicked DeSantis' ass. And he was in a hostile uh, environment because Hannity was clearly on the side of the right, so to yeah. speak. But Newsom's a worthy successor. I, I thought he did well. Try to catch the highlights of that, but... He used a line that reminded me of your song because you put Dr. Bill in your song. Remember that? Yes. <laughs> yeah. And what's Dr. Bill's catchphrase? I don't know. I, I doubt I've ever watched him from start to finish. What? Behave? <laughs> now, I'll listen to the way you are behaving, and yeah. then I'll say this. And how's that working out for you? Oh, Okay. All right. That's a pretty good one, actually. I right. Like that. Yeah. And that's what Newsom said to DeSantis. He said, yeah. And you're trying to out-Trump Trump, and you're 41 points down. How's that working out for you, I like Ron? That. Yeah. yeah. So that's why I think it's entertaining. You know what else is entertaining is the background singing in this song. Do you remember who it was? It was both my daughters. Both of them. Both I thought of them. it was two of them. Both of them. Gosh, it's Rather beautiful. Be right. yeah. Why yeah. don't you let them sing the whole song? Because your song is like you're thinking, this is really great song. And then it becomes spectacular at the very end when they come in. Right. Well, there's like a chorus at the end. Um, yeah, that's the, way, that's the way it works. You kind of try to build these things, right? And is that a ukulele you're playing? No, definitely not a ukulele. If, I'm trying to think what I might have played on this. It probably it would have been my mandolin. Yeah. It's full kind of island sound. Yeah. You know yeah. who we might dedicate this to? My Benny boy. Saturday, December 2, he turns 25. That's my firstborn son and, you know, the apple of my eyes. So and You'll be spending some time with yes, him, I understand. Yes, looking That's forward great. to it. That's looking fantastic. Looking forward to it. Yeah. Looking forward to uh, talking some more on upcoming episodes. But everybody wants to hear Rather Be Right by Dave Gunders, our troubadour. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom, Craig. fly from this house Every time those angry words fly from your pretty mouth And I can no longer bite my tongue Did you take on more than you can chew when you said I was the only one Flitters here and there like bats Pursuing something I can't 
Michael, of course, is a great sponsor of my show, but more than that, he's my lawyer, my end-of-life planning lawyer, and I've got two dogs. What about you? I have two dogs right now as well. And not only do you love your dogs at home with your kids and your wife, but you get involved with dog issues in your law practice. Tell everybody about that. So I will write pet trusts, which is, you can earmark money to take care of your pets. Um, you know, a lot of people, you know, they've got their dogs and you know, they love their dogs. But then if somebody were to, you know, if, you're, if you were to pass away, you know, who's going to take your dogs? Who would, who would love your dogs as much as you do? I don't know that anybody would love your dogs as much as you do. But like, I grew up with dogs. And so if I were to pass away, then my parents or my siblings could take the dogs. So when you set up a pet trust, you can 
dictate who's going to get those dogs and then who you can leave money to take care of the dogs as well. I like working with you and I think you are ahead of your time. You have 15 different locations. How cool is that? It's, it is nice to be able to go to all the different locations and you know meet people where it's comfortable and more convenient for them. And nobody wants to drive from one part of Metro Denver to the other to meet with a lawyer. You will come to them. Yep, and I'll deal with traffic so you don't have to. Tell us how people can get in touch with you. My direct phone number is 720-394-6887, or they can go to my website, which is mobileestateplanning.com. And again, that's mobileestateplanning.com. And there's even a schedule, you know, there's a book an appointment link on this on the website. All right, Michael Bailey, thank you. Okay, here's the thing. You've been hurt. Maybe, God forbid, someone's been killed. You don't know what to do. If it happened in Colorado, please get a hold of me. Check out my website, craigscoloradolaw.com. Craigscoloradolaw.com because I have four decades of experience. Sadly, I've helped a lot of people who have been hurt terribly through no fault of their own. 303-734-7156. Please call Craig. Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. 303-734-7156. Hey, thank you, Troubadour. Before we go, I need to tell you that there's more than one way to interview a Ron Weinberg. George Brockler had him on, and he tried to make it political as if the Dems are all enemies, and you have to hear it to believe it. I want to play for you the sound right now. Here's Brockler finding out that Elizabeth Epps got to talk for a really pretty long time, 40 minutes, and he uses some words that I don't know. I wouldn't use words like this, but He's on talk radio, and he's got a morning show, and he wants to be Douglas County DA, and he talks about Dems as being cutless and spineless and Elizabeth Epps rather than speaking. I don't like her, but he used the word vomit. Well, listen to George Brockler as he interviews Ron Weinberg about, I don't know, eight or nine days ago. So they let her speak for 40 minutes on the floor. Hold on. She, hold on. Representative Ron else. Weinberg. We're talking with Representative Ron Weinberg from the Loveland area. Hold on. They let her. Who, who gets 40 minutes on the floor to vomit up about stuff that ultimately they say doesn't match the title? It, they were in a panic because guess what was going to happen? There was going to be a vote on the amendment. And the vote was not going to be on whether the bill was good or not. The vote was going to be whether you were pro-Israel or pro-Hamas, pro-terrorism, pro-absolute disgusting, and, and it, they didn't let it to vote, so they panicked, and, and two minutes before the time ran out, for the Rule 14 time, they wouldn't let it vote, they figured they'd get away with it, if they say it's not within the title, then they can just drop it and nobody has to vote. And then everybody got dismissed last night at 12... Oh, five or something. So this is recorded, right? Like what takes place on the floor Absolutely. is recorded. Okay, I want to go back and listen to this. How in the world do these gutless, spineless Democrats, by the way, Ron, you know this, 
it seems like the Democrats for decades now have cornered the market on appealing to uh, Jewish voters for one reason or another. How is it that they cannot stand up to the voice of anti-Semitism within their own ranks? Now, as you know, if you listen to the show, there has been a back and forth between Brockler and me because he tweeted silence his complicity and none of these Republicans want to talk about the anti-Semitism of Donald Trump or radio colleagues like Peter Boyles or to look at themselves. Donald Trump talking about Burma and poisoning the bloodstream and yet George Brockler cannot find the time to put him on. He cannot find the time to put on anything from Chuck Schumer, which I have at the end of my show. He keeps talking about Jews won't say anything. He's the guy who won't say anything. And if you want to say silence is complicity, which is what he tweeted, I put that back on him several times, and now he tries to put it back again. Listen to what he says as he tries to make political points with Ron Weinberg on the air. I'm just sorry that you have to go through this. What I don't understand, and and, and I can't, listen, you know this as well as I do. Governor Jared Polis, Attorney General Phil Weiser, Secretary of State Jenna Griswold, three of the four statewide elected officials, all Democrats, all claim Jewish heritage and support for the Jewish faith and the Jewish people. Not a word or a peep from them about any of this. What's going on? You know, I, I don't know. You know, I so so being on the Jewish side, right? I I, can't, I get to invited to all of the stuff, and it's you know it is all Democrat. I mean, the governor's Hanukkah party's coming up. I get an invite to that stuff. And when they did the the rally for Israel on the steps, I mean, we had thousand plus people rallying for Israel. All of the governor's staff was there. I mean, there, there's a huge Jewish presence in leadership in this state on the Democratic side. And, and you're absolutely right. I don't know where they are. What happened to the idea that what happened to the idea? And we hear it all the time from the left. Silence is complicity and never yeah. again. Are those just words we now say when we're throwing punches at the right? Or is this does this actually mean something? Wow. That's where it's coming from, Brockler, because Phil Weiser released a letter with fellow Democrats. I discussed it with uh, Representative Weinberg. That happened after his Brockler interview. And as he admitted, he didn't even know Weiser and Griswold are Jewish. He's just learning the lay of the land. And he doesn't want trouble with Jewish people, but it's Brockler who's trying to stir it up with his silence, his complicity. We were all at that rally at the Capitol. I didn't see Brockler there. I didn't see him at Temple Emanuel. I didn't see him at the Jewish National Fund the way Jared Polis was on Thursday night. Anyway, George Brockler might not have known about these things because he does not know about a lot of things. Listen to him talk about Scott Bottoms because he's a fellow Republican. Representative Weinberg knows him. He's a pastor, Pastor Scott Bottoms, who said the hostages that Hamas took might be well advised to pray to Jesus and turn their lives to Jesus. And the Jews of Israel should do that too, which was in the news. It's not really that nice of a thing to say, but it's not as bad as Elizabeth Epps because Christians, maybe they want to love us to death, and that's a lot better than what Hamas did. 
Scott Bottoms' ignorance is revealed by George Brockler in this soundbite as he continues to try to make this a partisan issue and taunt Jewish Democrats. Listen at the end as he uses some real unfortunate language about Jews being chicken or cowards or what did he use the word cowed. How now, brown cow, George Brockler? We hear you, man. If Scott Bottoms, if Brandy Brazzy, if Ty Winter, if any single one of those people did that in that well, it would have been all hell to pay, and it would have been censured list all day long. What was Bottoms uh, censured for? I mean, in essence, censured unofficially. Like, well, what, he wasn't censured. That's what was, the problem. But he what was, was he censured for? Well, he was uh, silenced. What was he silenced for uh, saying? You know what? I'm going to have to ask. I, I forget. It was something let's, absolutely let's, ridiculous. Let's do this. Uh, Representative Ron Weinberg from Loveland. Uh, gutsy, courageous guy continuing to fight not just the nonsense with our Tabor refunds, but the anti-Semitism that seems to have taken a hold of the Democrat Party and cowed the Jewish members of it. Like, they're afraid. They're afraid of the Epses and the Hernandezes. I mean, it's frightening. Uh, nonetheless, Ron, can we have you back on maybe even tomorrow after today so you can let us know what's going on and the steps that you took to get a hold of the governor and to let McCluskey know that this kind of garbage has to be addressed? This kind of garbage has to be addressed. Julie McCloskey, who was a hero in this, a friend of Representative Weinberg, if you listen, and that shitty talk about Jewish members being cowed. Well, we will address that kind of garbage. I will. And maybe you should pay attention to Scott Bottoms and what he had to say about the Jewish people if you want to host a morning talk show. But what he really wants to do is get the hell out of there and get a job as Douglas County DA, courtesy of the Republican Party. And maybe that will happen, but with not without us addressing this kind of garbage. And I'll tell you, Brockler and others, I will say this, Kaplan interviewed Weinberg and he gave credit to the Jews on the Democrat side, unlike Brockler, who made them evil in all of it. That's his agenda. And I'd urge either of those guys to play Chuck Schumer's speech, a part of it, listen to it, analyze it, discuss it with the audiences, instead of saying, what is it about anti-Semitism? Where does it come from? I don't know any anti-Semites. Who would really be an anti-Semite? Is Elon Musk an anti-Semite? How do you know what it is? Well, Chuck Schumer explains it, and I'm going to shut up and put on the record on my podcast the entirety of his speech because it's that good, and it starts out pretty good, but it gets going, and it gives you a historical context, and it explains a certain existential dread that's passed down through our DNA because we see Jew haters on the far left, on the far right, people trying to gain a political advantage, and it's outrageous. And we're going to talk about it on this show with anybody and everybody. Gosh, what a great guest Yaron Ron Weinberg was. I enjoyed meeting his wife, Carolyn, too. And I also got to have another great interaction with our troubadour, Dave Gunders, his song, Rather Be Right. Fantastic. Chuck Schumer, you made me proud. 
I want you to listen next week, next Saturday. We have one heck of a show. And we're going to be talking about what really is the barrier to peace. What really is going on in the Middle East? What are the true obstacles? We are going to keep addressing that. And we're keeping an eye on the big lies told by Trump, too. It's great to have you listen. Tell a friend, share, subscribe. Enjoy Chuck Schumer. I do. He's got the same initials as me. He's got that going for him. And he's about eight years older than me. And I remember a lot of this stuff that he talks about. The boycott of Pepsi in favor of Coke because Coke was favorable to Israel. Wilson tennis balls were not good because they boycotted Israel. We've been through so many fights, but nothing like this as we support the tiny Jewish state of Israel against people who want to wipe them out. And then they accuse Israel of trying to wipe out people. Holy cow, they can't do that. They're not trying to do that. They just want to live. And they want their hostages back. Free Palestine, free our fucking hostages. Thanks for listening. Until next Saturday, have a great week. Take it away, Chuck Schumer. Mr. President. Majority Leader. Are we in a quorum? Mr. President. Today, I come to the floor to speak on a subject of great importance, the rise of anti-Semitism in America. I feel compelled to speak because I'm the highest ranking Jewish elected official in America. In fact, the highest ranking Jewish elected official ever in American history. And I have noticed a significant disparity between how Jewish people regard the rise of anti-Semitism and how many of my non-Jewish friends regard it. To us, the Jewish people, the rise of anti-Semitism is a crisis, a five-alarm fire that must be extinguished. For so many other people of goodwill, it is merely a problem, a matter of concern. So today, I want to use my platform to explain why so many Jewish people see this problem as a crisis. Before I get into that, I want to offer two important caveats about what this speech is not. This speech is not an attempt to label most criticism of Israel, of Israel and the Israeli government generally as anti-Semitic. I don't believe that criticism is. And this speech is also not an attempt to pit hate towards one group against that of another. I believe that bigotry against one group of Americans is bigotry against all. And that's why I've, I've championed legislation like the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act, which targets violence against Asian Americans, and the Nonprofit Security Grant Program, which provides funding to help all houses of worship, churches, mosques, synagogues, gurdwaras, and to protect them from extremists. When President Trump called for a Muslim ban during the first weeks of his presidency, I held an emergency press conference to protest the ban alongside a Muslim mom and four of her daughters, all dressed in chadors, who said they feared they might never see their father again. 
It was a deeply distressing moment, and I'm an emotional sort. I began to cry. President Trump saw me crying on TV and gave me a nickname, Crying Chuck Schumer. I was and am proud of that moniker. The growing and vibrant Arab community is a vital, Arab American community is a vital part of our nation and of my city. And I condemn unequivocally any vitriol and hatred against them. <clears throat> we tragically saw where such hatred can lead sometimes in Vermont this week. And that is unacceptable. But today, I want to focus my remarks on anti-Semitism because it hits so close to home for me and because I believe this moment demands it. I have just said what this speech is not. So what is this speech about? I want to describe the fears and anxieties of many Jewish Americans right now, particularly after October 7th, who feel there are aspects of the debate around Israel and Gaza that are crossing over into anti-Semitism, rank anti-Semitism, with Jewish people simply being targeted for being Jewish, having nothing to do with Israel. I want to explain through the lens of history why this is so dangerous. The normalization and exacerbation of this rise in hate is the danger many Jewish people fear most. And finally, I want to suggest how and why I hope that all Americans of goodwill can come together and do a better job of condemning such views and such behavior. But first, let us establish the facts. There's no question that anti-Semitism is a serious problem in America. In general, Jewish Americans represent 2% of the U.S. population, yet we are the targets of 55% of all religion-based hate crimes recorded by the FBI. This problem has been steadily worsening in recent years, but after Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th, hate crimes against Jewish Americans have skyrocketed. The Anti-Defamation League estimates that anti-Semitic incidents have increased nearly 300% since October 7th. The NYPD has recorded a 214% increase in New York City. And af after October 7th, Jewish Americans are feeling singled out, targeted, and isolated. In many ways, we feel alone. The solidarity that Jewish Americans initially received from many of our fellow citizens was quickly drowned out by other voices, while the dead bodies of Jewish Israelis were still warm, while hundreds of Jewish Israelis were being carried as hostages back to Hamas tunnels under Gaza. Jewish Americans were alarmed to see some of our fellow citizens characterize a brutal terrorist attack as justified because of the actions of the Israeli government. A vicious, blood-curdling, premeditated massacre of innocent women, men, children, the elderly, justified. Even worse, in some cases, people even celebrated what happened, describing it as the deserved fate of, quote, colonizers, and calling for glory to the martyrs who carried out these heinous attacks.
That happened here in America. Many of the people who express these sentiments in America aren't neo-Nazis or card-carrying Klan members or Islamist extremists. They're in many cases people that most liberal Jewish Americans felt previously were their ideological fellow travelers. Not long ago, many of us marched together for black and brown lives. We stood against anti-Asian hatred. We protested bigotry against the LGBTQ community. We fought for reproductive justice out of the recognition that injustice against one oppressed group is injustice against all. But apparently, Mr. President, in the eyes of some, this principle does not extend to the Jewish people. The largely Ashkenazi survivors of decades of pogroms in Imperial Russia and the Holocaust under Nazi Germany, their children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, the Mizrahi, who were forcibly evicted from Arab countries and their descendants, the many Sephardim, who were scattered across the Mediterranean after they were expelled from Spain and Portugal in the late 1400s. Do they not deserve the solidarity of those who advocate for the rights and dignity of the oppressed? Given the long history of persecution of the Jewish people throughout the world, many of those protesting Israeli policy note that at least 700,000 Palestinians displaced or forced from their homes in 1948, but they never mention the 600,000 Mizrahi Jews across the Arab world who were also displaced, whose property was confiscated, whose lives were threatened, who were expelled from their communities. The hope at the time was that there would be two states, a Jewish state and a Palestinian state, living side by side. The plan was for the state of Israel to absorb the Jewish people from Arab lands and the new Palestinian state to absorb the Palestinians who now lived in Israel. In fact, Israel did absorb the displaced Jewish people of Arab lands. But the Arab nations insisted, inst but the Arab nations instead sanctioned the United Nations to set up refugee camps for the Palestinians, refusing to accept the possibility that any of them would ever be relocated. Several times throughout history, Jew Israeli prime ministers called for a return to, the, to close to the pre-1967 borders established by the United Nations plan. Those calls were rejected by Yasser Arafat, the PLO, and the wider Arab community. Many, if not most, Jewish Americans, including myself, support a two-state solution. We disagree with Prime Minister Netanyahu and his administration's encouragement of militant settlers in the West Bank, which has become a considerable obstacle to a two-state nation. But the reason why I invoke history about the founding of the Israeli state is because forgetting or even deliberately ignoring this vital context is dangerous. Some of the most extreme rhetoric against Israel has emboldened anti-Semites who are attacking Jewish people simply because they are Jewish, independent of anything having to do with Israel. And those who are inclined to examine the world through the lens of oppressors versus the oppressed should take note that the many thousands of years of Jewish history are defined by oppression 
from October 7, 2023 in southern Israel, to 2018 at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, to 1999 at the Los Angeles JCC, to 1986 at the Neve Shalom Synagogue in Istanbul, to 1974 at the Netev Meir Elementary School in Malot, to Yom Kippur, 1973 in the Golan Heights, to 1972 at the Munich Olympics in Lod Airport, to 1967 at the Straits of Tehran, to the 1940s and 30s in Germany and Central Europe, to the 1800s in the Pale of Settlement, to 1679 in Yemen, to 1492 in Spain, 1394 in France, to 1290 in England, to the Crusades in the Middle Ages, to 629 in Galilee, to the year 73 in Jerusalem, to 586 B.C. in Judea, to 722 B.C.E.C. in Samaria, to the 13th century B.C.E. in Egypt. The Jewish people have been humiliated, ostracized, expelled, enslaved, and massacred for millennia. To paraphrase lines recited every year, century after century, at Passover Seder, this is the bread of affliction that our forefathers ate in the land of Egypt. In every generation, they rise up to destroy us. For Jewish people all across the world, the history of our trauma going back many generations is central to any discussion about our future. To many Americans, especially in our younger generation, too many Americans, especially in our younger generation, don't have a full understanding of this history because some Jewish people have done well in America, because Israel has increased its power and territory. There are people who feel that Jewish Americans are not vulnerable, that we have the strength and security to overcome prejudice and bigotry, that we have, to quote the language of some, become the, quote, oppressors. In fact, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories throughout the generations often theorize, often weaponize this very dynamic by pitting what successes the Jewish people have achieved against them and against their fellow countrymen. That's been throughout history. It's happening now. But for many Jewish Americans, any strength and security that we enjoy always feels tenuous. No matter how well we're doing, it can all be taken away in an instant. That's just how it is. We only have to look back a century, a few generations, to see how this can happen. Growing up, I remember my grandfather telling me that he rooted for Germany over Russia in World War I because Germans treated the Jewish people so much better than Russia did. In the early 1900s, German Jews were one of the most secure and prosperous ethnic communities in Europe. But in the span of a decade, all of that changed. When the Nazis first marched in the streets and held rallies decrying the so-called international financiers, war profiteers, communists, many Germans of goodwill either stayed silent or marched alongside of them, not necessarily realizing what they were aiding and abetting. But when Adolf Hitler took the podium just a few years later at the Reichstag, it was clear by then that the terms international financiers, war profiteers, communists, represented the Jewish people. 
who Hitler called parasites, feeding on the body and productive work of other nations. By bits and pieces, the Nazis softened the ground rhetorically for what Hitler eventually stated was his true goal, quote, the annihilation of the Jewish race in Europe. And so many of those Germans of goodwill who marched in the early years of Hitler's ascension stayed on the sidelines after his horrifying intent was made clear. The end result, as we all know, was the most targeted and systematic genocide in all of human history. Six million Jewish people were exterminated in a few years, while so many others turned a blind eye. History shows that anti-Semitism is deeply embedded in Europe. I have always said it is the poison of European societies. Anti-Semitism is the poison of European societies, just as racism against black Americans is the poison of our society. And while we're thankfully a far ways away from Nazi Germany today, this is why many people worry about the marches today, especially in Europe. What may begin is legitimate criticism of Israeli policy, or even a valid debate over other religious, economic, and political issues, can sometimes cross into something darker, attacking Jewish people for simply being Jewish. Obviously, many of those marching here in the U.S. do not have any evil intent. But when Jewish people hear chants like, from the river to the sea, a founding slogan of Hamas, a terrorist group that is not shy about their goal to eradicate the Jewish people in Israel and around the globe, we are alarmed. When we see signs in the crowd that read, by any means necessary, after the most violent attack ever against Israeli civilians, we are appalled at the casual invocation of such savagery. When we see protesters at Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade compare the genocide of the Holocaust equivalently to the Israeli army's action to defeat Hamas in self-defense of their people, we are shocked. And when we see many people in news organizations remain neutral about the basic absurdity of these claims and actions, we are deeply disappointed. More than anything, we're worried quite naturally, given the twists and turns of history, about where these actions and sentiments could eventually lead. Now, this is no intellectual exercise for us. For many Jewish people, it's like a matter of survival informed once again by history. In this case, very personal history to me. Take the story of my own family. My grandfather came to Ellis Island at a very young age from Eastern Europe, without an education, without a penny to his name. He was a street urchin, stealing apples from the pushcarts just to survive. But he dreamt of a brighter future for himself and his family. My grandfather ended up with the paper workers in Utica, New York, and helped form the union there. But he lost his job in the lead up to World War II, so he came back to New York City and bought a little exterminating business. His son, my father, followed in his footsteps and eventually took over that exterminating business. My father struggled in that job, barely making ends meet. But together with my mom, 
He provided a stable and loving home in Brooklyn for my siblings and me, where we were able to flourish. And because of the tolerance and the openness and the opportunity that courses through all of American life, I now stand before you as the majority leader of the United States Senate, the highest elected office a Jewish person has ever attained in the history of this country. Only in America, only in America, could an exterminator's son grow up to be the first Jewish party leader in the Senate. But it must be said also, this is not the norm in the grand and long scheme of Jewish history. While my grandfather came to America and encountered opportunity, many of his siblings, cousins, aunts and uncles and other family members remained behind in Eastern Europe. When I was still a young boy, I was told why many branches of our family tree stopped growing forever. In 1941, when the Nazis invaded Ukraine, then part of Galicia, they asked my great-grandmother, the matriarch of the family, the wife of a locally revered rabbi, to gather her children, her grandchildren, her great-grandchildren, on the porch of her home, which was located in the town square. As more than 30 people gathered on the porch, aged 85 to three months, the Nazis forced the remaining Jewish citizens of the town to gather in the town square and watch. When the Nazis told my great-grandmother, you are coming with us, she refused. And they machine-gunned down every last one of them. The babies, the elderly, everybody in between. This story resonated deeply in my heart when I first started learning the details of the October 7th massacre in Israel. I was in China with a bipartisan delegation of my fellow senators trying to get President Xi Jinping to open up Chinese markets to American companies and stop the flow of fentanyl across our borders. As the horrors of October 7th started coming into focus, the Israeli ambassador to China shared with me the story of what she heard had just happened in one of the kibbutzim called Biri. Hamas terrorists entered the kibbutz on October 7th and killed more than 120 Jewish residents from the elderly to the babies. Sadly, it was not the first time I heard of such evil being committed against the Jewish people. Most, if not all Jewish Americans, know stories similar to that of my family. And most, if not all of us, learned this story at a young age. It will be imprinted in our hearts for as long as we live. All Jewish Americans carry in them the scar tissue of this generational trauma, and that directly informs how we are experiencing and processing the rhetoric of today. We see and hear things differently from others because we're deeply sensitive to the deprivation and horrors that can follow the targeting of Jewish people if it is not repudiated. Which brings me back to today. While many protesters no doubt view their actions as a compassionate expression of solidarity with the Palestinian people, for many Jewish Americans, we feel in too many instances, some of the most extreme rhetoric gives license to darker ideas that have always lurked below the surface of every question involving the Jewish people. Anti-Semites have always trafficked in coded language, an action to define Jewish people as unworthy of the rights and privileges afforded to other groups. 
I believe there are plenty of people who chant from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, not because they hate Jewish people, but because they support a better future for Palestinians. But there is no question that Hamas and other terrorist organizations have used this slogan to represent their intention to eliminate Jewish people, not only from Israel, but from every corner of the earth. Given the history of oppression, expulsion, and state violence that is practically embedded in Jewish DNA, can you blame the Jewish people for hearing a violently anti-Semitic message, loud and clear, any time we hear that chant? We shouldn't accept this sort of language from anybody any more than we accept other racist dog whistles, like invoking welfare queens to criticize safety net programs, or calling COVID-19 the Chinese virus. And that goes for extreme right-wing Jewish settlers who also use deplorable language and who don't believe there should be any Palestinians between the river and the sea. Anti-Semites are taking advantage of the pro-Palestinian movement to espouse hatred and bigotry towards Jewish people. But rather than call out this dangerous behavior for what it is, we see so many of our friends and fellow citizens, particularly young people who yearn for justice, unknowingly aiding and abetting their cause. And worse, many of our friends and allies whose support we need now more than ever during this moment of intense Jewish pain have brushed aside these concerns. Suddenly, they don't want to hear about anti-Semitism or the ultimate goal of Hamas. When I've asked some of the marchers what they would do about Hamas, they don't have an answer. Many don't seem to care. And so Jewish Americans are left alone, at least in our eyes, to ponder what this all means and where it could lead. Can you understand why the Jewish people feel isolated when we hear some praise Hamas and chant its vicious slogan? Can you blame us for feeling vulnerable only 80 years after Hitler wiped out half the Jewish population across the world while so many countries turned their back? Can you appreciate the deep fear we have about what Hamas might do if left to their own devices? Because the long arc of Jewish history teaches us a lesson that is hard to forget. Ultimately, we are alone. As a teenager, growing halfway across the world from Israel in Brooklyn during the 50s and 60s, I remember this feeling, this, this feeling of aloneness myself. When many of the world's airlines boycotted Israel so that they could maintain business with the Arab world, I admired Air France as a little boy because only they would fly to Israel. I preferred to drink Coca-Cola to Pepsi because Coca-Cola did business in Israel and refused to participate in a biased boycott. Later, I remember in June of 1967, walking in solitary silence to class in Madison High School with a transistor radio held to my ear, listening to the news reports about the Six-Day War and praying to God that Israel would survive. On top of feeling alone, the second dominant feeling that Jewish people have endured throughout history has been the sting of the double standard. 
which is the way the world has practiced anti-Semitism over and over again. To the Jewish people, the double standard has been ever-present and is at the root of anti-Semitism. The double standard is very simple. What is good for everybody is never good for the Jew. And when it comes time to assign blame for some problem, the Jew is always the first target. And in recent decades, this double standard has manifested itself in the way much of the world treats Israel differently than anybody else. The double standard was made clear to me when I was in college. I remember the day when the great and articulate Israeli ambassador to the United Nations, Abba Iban, was invited to come lecture on campus while the Students for Democratic Society and the Progressive Labor Party were waging a campaign against Israel's right to exist. 2,000 people gathered in a large auditorium to see Ambassador Iban, and the members of the SDS PLP sat in the gallery and hung a banner saying, fight the Zionist imperialists. When the members of the SDS and the PLP tried to shout him down, Iban pointed his finger to the protesters in the gallery. And with his Etonian inflection, he calmly but strongly delivered a statement I will never forget and that I will paraphrase to now. He said, I am talking to you up there in the gallery. Every time a people gets their statehood, you applaud it. The Nigerians, the Pakistanis, the Zambians, you applaud their getting statehood. There is only one people when they gain statehood you don't applaud, you condemn it and that is the Jewish people. We Jews are used to that, he said. We have lived with a double standard throughout the centuries. There were always things the Jews couldn't do. Everyone could be a farmer, but not the Jew. Everyone could be a carpenter, but not the Jew, he said. Everyone could move to Moscow, but not the Jew. And everyone can have their own state, but not the Jew. There is a word for it, he said to them. That is anti-Semitism and I accuse you in the gallery of it. And the protesters slinked off. This double standard persists in America today, and it is once again leaving Jewish people feel isolated and alone. In the immediate aftermath of October 7th, an attack on defenseless civilians, the elderly, women, babies, a good number of people skipped over expressing sympathy for its victims in their haste to blame the attack on the past actions of the Israeli government. Can anyone imagine a horrific terrorist attack in another country receiving such a reception? And when Hamas terrorists actively hide behind innocent Palestinians, knowing that many of those civilians will die in the Israeli response, why does the criticism for any civilian death seem to fall exclusively on Israel and not at all on Hamas? My heart breaks for the thousands of Palestinian civilians who have been killed or suffering in this conflict, so many children. And I have urged the Israeli government to minimize civilian casualties on many occasions. But by committing such heinous atrocities on October 7th, before sneaking back into their tunnels underneath hospitals and in refugee camps in Gaza, Hamas has knowingly invited an immense civilian toll during the war, exploiting the double standard that so much of the world applies to Israel. 
Of course, let me repeat, that does not relieve Israel of the responsibility to protect innocent Palestinian lives. And I've been among the first to tell Israeli leaders they must act according to international law. I'm also fighting for critical humanitarian aid for Palestinians that this Senate, under my leadership, is working to deliver. So, I rise in this chamber today. I am speaking up to issue a warning informed by lessons of history too often forgotten. No matter what our beliefs, no matter where we stand on the war in Gaza, all of us must condemn anti-Semitism with full-throated clarity wherever we see it before it metastasizes into something even worse. Because right now, that's what Jewish Americans fear most. The spike in anti-Semitism we're experiencing right now in America began after the worst instance of violence committed against Jewish people since the Holocaust. The vitriol against Israel in the wake of October 7th is all too often crossing a line into brazen and widespread anti-Semitism, the likes of which we haven't seen for generations in this country, if ever. Which is why we need to name it clearly any time we see it. After October 7th, when boycotts were organized against Jewish businesses in Philadelphia that have nothing to do with Israel, that is anti-Semitism. After October 7th, when swastikas appeared on Jewish delis on the Upper East Side, that is anti-Semitism. After October 7th, when protesters in California shouted at Jewish Americans, Hitler should have smashed you, that is anti-Semitism. After October 7th, when a Jewish U.S. Senator was violently threatened for her views on Israel, that is anti-Semitism. After October 7th, when students on college campuses across the country who wear a yarmulke or display a Jewish star are harassed, verbally vilified, pushed, even spat upon and punched, that is anti-Semitism. After October 7th, when an author in a prominent left-wing magazine labeled the pro-Israeli rally in Washington a hate rally, that is anti-Semitism. I attended that rally like tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of others, because I believe there should be a place of refuge for the Jewish people. Not because I wish violence on Palestinians, or any other people. And Mr. President, after October 7th, when students at Hillcrest High School in Queens ran rampant in the hallways and demanded the firing of a teacher, these are high school students, demanding the firing of a teacher just because that teacher attended a rally supporting Israel and forced her to hide in a locked office for hours, while staff struggle to regain control, that is anti-Semitism. Walking out of the school to march in support of Palestinians is completely legitimate. But forcing a Jewish teacher to remain, as she described, locked in an office because she attended a rally in support for Israel is anti-Semitism, pure and simple. In fact, Mr. President, the teacher who I'm speaking about is sitting in the gallery today, right now. I invited her to come and listen, and I am truly honored 
that she accepted my invitation. That is true courage. I believe it shows just how strongly many, so many Jewish Americans feel about the issue. She has requested anonymity, which I ask everybody present and everyone in the media to please respect. But I say to her from the bottom of my heart, thank you for being here. Thank you for caring. I have just listed a few of the so many examples, there are so many more, of pure, unadulterated anti-Semitism has dramatically increased since October 7th. But the roots of pluralistic, multi-ethnic democracy are deep in America. This is a place where Jewish people have been able to flourish alongside so many other immigrant groups. We must never lose sight of just how special that is, nor, nor must we ever stop fighting for it. All Americans share a responsibility and an obligation to fight back whenever we see the rise of prejudice of any type in our midst. To preserve this nation as a promised land of refuge, as a land that honors the dignity of every individual, as the land of opportunity for all. So my plea, my plea, my fervent plea to the American people of all creeds and backgrounds is this. First, learn the history of the Jewish people who have been abandoned repeatedly by their fellow countrymen. I say this particularly to younger people who didn't live with any of this history. Learn the history of the Jewish people who have, who, we have, who have been left isolated and alone to combat anti-Semitism through the centuries. Second, reject the illogical and anti-Semitic double standard that is once again being applied to the plight of Jewish victims and hostages, to some of the actions of the Israeli government, and even to the very existence of a Jewish state. That is a double standard. There's no ducking from it. Third, understand why Jewish people defend Israel, not because we wish harm to, on Palestinians, but because we fear a world where Israel is forced to tolerate the existence of groups like Hamas that want to wipe out all Jewish people from the planet some of us watched this film, which the public can't see, which showed the brutality and viciousness that every Israeli citizen and every Jew feels. We fear a world where Israel, the place of refuge for Jewish people, will no longer exist. If there is no Israel, there will need be no place, no place for Jewish people to go when they are persecuted in other countries. As an adult, I remember watching my grandfather, one of the few in his family to survive the Holocaust, being overwhelmed by emotion and breaking down in tears when he saw Israel for the first time. This had nothing to do with politics or with money or with racism or with oppression. It was deeply human. The emotional catharsis of a man whose family was uprooted and exterminated, finally stepping foot in the place of refuge for his people. A place that the Jewish people had yearned for, not just for decades or centuries, but for millennia. 
So many of my aunts and uncles and cousins and nieces and nephews would be alive today had Israel existed before World War II, as I said before. Many Jewish Americans fear what the future may bring based on the repeated lessons of history. Many Jewish Americans see clear anti-Semitism in the double standard that is being wielded by too many opponents of Israel. And we see it in attacks on Jewish people for simply being Jewish, apart from having anything to do with Israel. And maybe worst of all, many Jewish Americans feel alone to face all of this, abandoned by too many of our friends and allies in our greatest time of need as anti-Semitic hate crimes skyrocket across the country. I implore every person, every community, every institution to stand with Jewish Americans, not to ignore it, not to shrug your shoulders, to denounce it, anti-Semitism in all its forms, especially the double standard that has been wielded against the Jewish people for generations to isolate us. The time for solidarity must be now. Nothing less than the future of the American experiment hangs in the balance. Building a more perfect union, one that fulfills our founding ideals, is our longest and most solemn struggle as a country. And as Americans, we are called on to do all we can to achieve that higher standard. We are stewards of the flames of liberty, tolerance, equality, that warm our American melting pot and make it possible for Jewish Americans to prosper alongside Palestinian Americans and every other immigrant group from all over the world. Are we a nation that can defy the regular course of human history, where the Jewish people have been ostracized, expelled, and massacred over and over again? I believe, truly believe in my heart, that the answer can and must be a resounding yes. And I will do everything in my power as Senate Majority Leader, as a Jewish American, as a citizen of a free society, as a human being, to make it happen. Cain, Yehi, Ratzon. May it be God's will. I yield the floor. Well, that was Chuck Schumer. Thank you, Senate Majority Leader. Great words. Until next week, bye-bye. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show. <laughs>